Friends, good morning. Great to be with you and a joy to read God's word to you this morning. We're reading uh, from Romans chapter 1. And if you're following on with the church Bibles, it's page 1126. 1126. Give you a moment to find that. Romans chapter 1, and we're reading from verse 1 through to verse 15. And a reminder, this is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Good morning, everyone. Well, we are going on a wonderful journey through the book of Romans, and I am excited about it. Hopefully, that will come out in my message today. Let's pray as we start and think about God's Word. Father, we do thank you for this incredible letter. It's been life-changing and world-shaping in so many ways, and I pray, Lord, that it shapes us as a church and us as individuals as we come to understand your wonderful gospel more clearly and more deeply and more powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Nathan outlined at the start, we've got a new series, the Book of Romans. And if you're not familiar with it, it's not an exaggeration to say this letter is one of the most influential pieces of Christian writing in Christian history. Um, It hasn't just shaped the church, it really has in many ways shaped the world because of the impact that it had on the church. And I'll speak a little bit about that that later. But one uh, commentator, a guy called Leon Morris, I've got his book in my commentary. Uh, We're looking at Romans 1 to 15. Uh, Where are my slides going? There we go. Uh, Leon said these words, 
It's commonly agreed that the Epistle of the Romans is one of the greatest Christian writings. Um, now, as a preacher, obviously you tremble uh, because I've now got to expound one of the greatest pieces of Christian writing, and that's the task we've got before us. And I was just thinking about words that come to mind when I think about Romans and having read it. Just put your hand up if you have read this book recently or letter. So a few people have. Um, if you're not familiar with it, these are the words that come to mind. It's a rich book uh, or letter. It's a profound letter. It's a deep letter. There's incredibly memorable parts of this letter and it's also a challenging letter. And it's worth asking why such lofty descriptions and words that apply to it. And I think it's this uh, in very simple terms. This letter, like no other part of the New Testament gives you a deep, powerful clarity about the gospel. It's a letter that's all about the gospel. And why study it this term? Well, as we emerge out of COVID, and there's no doubt the effects of COVID rage continually around us, but as we come out of it, and as we navigate what is an ever-increasingly changing world where the memory of the Christian faith continues to fade, I think what we need most of all is a powerful gospel clarity. Uh, we need to understand the gospel with great clarity today, particularly as the memory of the gospel fades. We need to believe this gospel deeply, that it's actually good and it's powerful. And thirdly, we need to experience the power of the gospel in our own lives. And it's worth saying this is not a letter that was just written for academic purposes. It was written to bear fruit in the lives of the Roman Christians. And Paul deeply desired that it would powerfully be at work amongst them. Now, our vision as a church is this. It's to grow God's church through the gospel. Well, that's not going to happen if we are not convinced of it, if we're not experiencing it, if we don't understand it. We need more than ever a clarity a depth and a powerful experience of the gospel. And Romans, I'm praying, will do that for us. It's exactly why it was written. Now, let me just start with a few facts about Romans. It is a profound book. Um, I say book, it's a letter, uh, but we often say it's one of the books of the Bible. Um, four things. It was written in AD 57. And that is at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. We, in Acts last year, went through his second missionary journey. He ended up coming back to Corinth. And in winter in Corinth, we understand he wrote this letter to the Romans in anticipation of going to Jerusalem and then coming to Rome. Secondly, it was his sixth letter. So it's written in the middle of his kind of writing period. There's basically the letters he writes before he goes to Rome and then there's the letters then he writes when he is in Rome in chains. Thirdly, it's the longest of his letters. On average, his letters um, were about 1,300 words. Romans has 7,000. <laughs> now, interestingly, and I only just realised this this morning, Nathan told me, that's why it's the first of his letters that we've got in our English New Testaments, because it's the one with the most words. And if you look at the letters as they go, they basically go from the most words to the least words. Poor old Titus came at the end along with Philemon. Third thing, uh, sorry, fourth thing, um, Acts tells us that there were visitors from Rome, Acts chapter 10, on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is when the gospel is first preached by Peter 
in Jerusalem to all those gathered and there were visitors from Rome there that day and so there's a real possibility that there were people converted that day from Rome in Jerusalem who went back with the gospel. Uh, We don't know the exact origins of the gospel, we know Priscilla and Aquila were there but there was obviously a vibrant church there in place in AD 57 that Paul is writing to and we'll come to that in the end of the message. But the thing to note is, this is a book, this is a letter that is a detailed exposition of the gospel. Now, when you read through it, um, one of the things that you look at as a Bible teacher is just what are the words that appear and 12 times as you read through the letter to the Romans is the word gospel. Interestingly, this opening introduction verses 1 to 15, four times, and then what are really the hinge verses that open up as the letter then unfolds in verses 16 and 17, again mentioned twice. And so you could say six times at the very beginning, Paul is talking about the gospel. That's what this is a letter of, it's an exposition of it. And what I want to look at this morning, if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to have them open. I've got a bit of the scripture on the screen, but not all of it. Uh, Page 1126. Three things to look at today, gospel authorship, gospel content and gospel confidence. Let's think about that first one, gospel authorship. And I want you to note the way the letter starts. We often read over the introductions and some of them are very brief in some of the letters that Paul writes. This is not one of them. There's seven verses of introductory uh, dense material along with some commentary about uh, his wanting to visit them. Verse 1 says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Um, Paul says two very important things about himself. One, he is a servant. The word there is the word doulos. Uh, People may know of the ship, the doulos. It's a uh, ship that goes and ministers to people in need. Uh, It literally is the word for slave. And Paul is saying, actually, I am a slave, a servant of Christ. That's how I understand myself. But secondly, I am an apostle Um, of Jesus Christ I've been called by him an apostle was someone who was sent with authority and if you can put that together he is someone who is saying I am underneath the control the command of my master and I've been sent out with authority what for set apart for the gospel of God it's a very striking phrase what he's saying is um, I have a message but it's not my own It's actually God's message that I've been given. And what I'm going to communicate to you is not my own. It's God's message that's been given to me that I'm going to expound for you. And then he says in verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this message that is not my own has ancient roots. It goes right back in the scriptures that as a Jewish man he knew and loved and he says that's the origin of where this message comes from not me it's God's message and it's all predicted in the Old Testament now an interesting thing about Romans there are 61 quotes from the Old Testament in this one letter 14 different books of the Old Testament quoted in this one letter The two most prodigious books quoted from are the Psalms and Isaiah. The start is so important to grasp hold of. In the day and age that we live in, the gospel is a very challenging message. 
It speaks of profound truths and we have to say some of them run completely against the grain of our current culture that we live in. And they're completely against the grain of our modern psyche. And I was thinking about the way there's this disparity between the truth of the gospel and our current culture. We live in an age that says the most important person in the world is who? It's you. We, I, am at the centre. And Romans is going to say rubbish. God is. One of the reasons, and this is my own personal opinion, I think we see a decline in our society is because God is no longer on his throne in Australian society. We are. And whenever you put selfish people at the centre, it is only going to end badly. And the gospel is a message about God. He is central. But secondly, we live in an age where we're led to believe we're all inherently good. And you see, if you take God out of the equation, what are you left with? Well, in terms of thinking about yourself, well, you will just compare yourself to the person on the left and the right. And if the person on the left is Putin, then you think, I'm probably not too bad. And what we don't do is compare ourselves to God and see and understand ourselves in relationship to him. And as you read through Romans, you're going to get the most detailed, profound description of who we are. And let me just say, it is uncomfortable. Because in the most raw and real way, it will describe the fact that we are broken, we are flawed, we are rebellious, we are unable to please God. And in fact, none of us are good. And it goes all the way back to Adam. It's what the Bible calls sin. We don't want God. We want to run life ourselves. And we are deeply flawed. And it is completely against the spirit of the age that we live in. We live in an age that says, don't you dare judge me by how I live or what I do or what I believe. I mean, this runs so strongly through our society. Now let me say, I am not about to say I want to judge people, but the reality that this letter is going to bring before us is God will. And it's a very sobering letter at that level because it speaks of the reality of God's judgment. And Romans proclaims boldly that we will all have to stand before the judgment seat of God and only those trusting in Christ will be declared not guilty. And this is why we need to stop and study this most important of letters from the Apostle Paul because the great temptation of our age that I see happening in ever-increasing ways is to make Scripture say things that we want it to say or to omit things that we find difficult to read. And let me just say, I understand it, okay? As your pastor, there's parts of it that I find challenging. There's parts of it that seriously, if they weren't there, it would make my job a lot easier, but actually they are there and they're actually for our good. We need a clarity about the gospel like never before. We need a confidence in it and the experience of it. I love what Tim Keller said. 
We, like Paul, are not at liberty to reshape it so that it sounds more appealing in our day, nor to domesticate it to be more comfortable for our lives. And that is what Romans is going to do for us, make us uncomfortable and reshape our understanding of God and what it means to know him. The gospel is from him. It's God's message. But secondly, gospel content, it's all about our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look how verse 2 connects with verse 3. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Other translations, the ESV or the Holman Standard Christian Bible have concerning his son. In other words, it's about his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. In other words, he is a person who has lineage, his history, he's come from the Jewish people, he is the promised uh, one that came from David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now in saying he was appointed the Son of God, it's not saying that this is a new thing, it's rather this is the sense of um, now the world can see who he really is. Resurrected from the dead, you see his glory that he has taken on the form of the man and he now returns to his position where he left at the right hand of the Father, risen Son of God in power. The gospel is not primarily about your needs or my needs. When I hear people explain the gospel on occasions, you could be excused for thinking or believing that what they are saying is that the gospel is about how God wants to make your life better. Or my life better. Come to Jesus and your life will be so much better. Now, let me just say, the good news of the gospel is that if you properly understand it, and if you truly and deeply believe it, it can and will completely revolutionize your life in a way that you will say, I've been born again and I'm alive in a way like I've never been before. But that is not the gospel. That is the impact of the gospel on you. The word gospel in the English language that we've got translated is a Greek word, evangel. It's where we get the word evangelism or evangelical from and that word evangel literally means announcement. What's being announced in the gospel? Well, in the first century, if you're on a far-flung battlefield serving the Roman emperor and you won a great victory, securing peace, and establishing the Caesar's authority in that place, you would send back home a messenger and they would have a evangel, an announcement of victory. And it's interesting, the word and its root comes from the word angelos, angel, evangel. And an angel was literally a messenger. And so what is a gospel? Well, it's interesting. It's a word that's picked up by Paul and it's a favourite word of his. It is this announcement to the world of victory. It is good news. And it's all about Jesus Christ. Friends, why is this letter the one that is described as one of the greatest pieces of Christian literature ever. 
Why has it impacted so many lives? And I was reading about the people who've been impacted literally by the book of Romans. Uh, Augustine, who is one of the greatest giants of Christian thought, was converted out of this completely hedonistic lifestyle, living in sin, living it up sexually. Romans, he read, converted. Let me introduce you to another man who literally has shaped our Western world. His name is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, if you're not familiar with him, was a German Catholic monk. Uh, incredibly bright, he was a lecturer, PhD, lecturing in seminary to the students. And he was plagued by this sense of how can I be right with God? And the teaching that Luther had grown up with was that God required him to live a righteous life in order to be saved. So if you obey Luther, you'll then be saved. And because of this, his own experience was he couldn't ever meet the standards that he saw in Scripture. And he lived with this guilt. And he'd actually grown to hate God, he says. And there was a phrase in the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. And he hated that phrase. Let me read to you what he wrote in his commentary reflecting on the book of Romans. I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word. The expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way because I took it to mean that that righteousness where God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous Although an impeccable monk, speaking of himself, I stood before God as a sinner, therefore I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. And he was in this sort of tortuous experience. And then he says, and it's on the screen, then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Therefore, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise, I broke through. It was Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 that he was reflecting on. We're going to come to that next week. But it speaks of the fact that there is a righteousness of God which we take hold of by faith. And what he worked out was, and, and this is the great news, Christ is the righteousness of God and he has lived a life that we could never live and he gives us as a gift the technical word that they used in the day was it is imputed to you Christ's righteousness you have it merely by faith only by faith you trust in what God has done for you in Christ and you take hold of that gift by faith alone. And when Luther worked this out, as he read the book of Romans, I love those words. I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. <clears throat> what was he coming to grips with? The gospel, that in Christ, God is for us. 
And what we need to do, even though we are completely fallen and broken in sin, we just need to look up and take hold of by faith what Christ has done for us and believe the gospel and be born again. Paul finishes this introduction this way. Through him, we've received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. In other words, when you believe, it will actually produce in you a desire to now serve God. Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. And that's the reality and the beauty of the gospel we take hold of by Christ, by faith alone. And when we have that faith, it always follows in a life that is transformed. And he said, you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel about the Lord Jesus is also for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. It's for the world. And that's the thing. It is God's message about Jesus Christ, which is for the world. It's for us, which leads me to a third point. Sorry, my slides are slightly out of order. Gospel confidence. Let's just look through this longer section, the end of the introduction. Now, it's interesting. This is really one of the main parts that you get to see uh, Paul engaging with the Romans in terms of the actual context for the setting for the letter. Um, where we move from verses 16, you get a long description, explanation of the gospel. But he says, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. In other words, there were Christians in Rome. Um, Paul has heard about it on his missionary travels, probably through, firstly, Priscilla and Aquila. And he knows that there is a church there that's vibrant. And he's writing to them. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He wants to go and visit them, to minister to them and help them continue to grow in their faith. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now. And no doubt uh, there were significant numbers of people who wanted to tear Paul's ministry down because they did not agree with his message. And one of the ways they tried to do that was to paint him as flipsy-flopsy, unreliable. Um, you say you'll do one thing, you end up doing another, and you can see that particularly in the dialogue with the Corinthians. And what he's saying is he's justifying his issue. Look, I've wanted to come, I've not been able to come, but I am praying I will be able to come now. I've been praying for you unceasingly why in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles I want us to think about that Paul says in what follows I'm obligated to Greeks and non-Greeks both to the wise and the foolish that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. What Paul wants to do is continue his mission and his gospel ministry of proclaiming Christ in Rome. 
And he wants to both strengthen the Roman Christians as well as bring others who are not yet in the family to Christ. And he says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks. And the word there is literally where we get the word barbarian from. And it's an interesting positioning of the words together. The Greeks were the sophisticated, the intellectuals. And I'm obligated to them, but I'm also obligated to the barbarians, uh, which is not a flattering term. (laughs) And it literally was those foreigners who've come from outside amongst us. And it would have been typical, if I can say, of the Europeans from the north who had infiltrated down, and they literally saw them in what we would understand as a non-complementary way, barbarians, uncouth, uncultured, uneducated. I was thinking about if he was writing it to Australians, he'd say for the upper class, the lower class, for the woke and the non-woke, for the Anglo-Saxons and the non-Anglo-Saxons, for the tertiary educated and the non-tertiary educated. In other words, this is a message for everyone. But what I want you to pick up though is the confidence. He is not afraid. He is not daunted by who those people might be what culture they may have come out of, what worldview they may have espoused. His deep-seated belief and experience is this gospel is the power of God to save people. It's God's message. It's wonderful news about how God has sent his son to die on the cross and do what we could never do bring us into relationship with him. It's a message that offers grace and mercy that you take hold of simply by faith. And he had complete confidence that when he went to Rome, this gospel would bear a harvest of fruit. And friends, we need to have that same confidence today. I'll tell you an interesting fact about Rome. That's Tacitus on the screen behind me. He's a non-Christian Roman historian. And he gives us a very interesting insight into the city of Rome seven years after this letter was written. And the emperor of Rome at the time when the letter to the Romans arrived was Nero. And if you know anything about Roman history, Nero was a despot. He was appalling and he, in part of his reign, had a terrible period of persecuting and killing Christians, making fun of them. And Tacitus records for us this period. I'll just read a small quote. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to being Christians. It's the first non-Christian record of Christians here in the city of Rome, AD 64, then on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as because of their hatred of the human race. I won't go to explain why they thought that, but it was tied up with their misunderstanding of the gospel. They didn't believe all the gods. They obviously must hate the human race. I want you to see that phrase that's involved. An immense multitude was convicted. I want you to think about that. Seven years after this letter has arrived, what is the result? 
it's most likely Paul has arrived and also begun his ministry. We know from the book of Acts that it closes with these words, for two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. This is in Rome. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In other words, this is a gospel message that no one, let me repeat that, no one can stop. Because it's God's. Because it's about his son, the Lord Jesus, who has come for us. Because it's good news, friends. It offers mercy and grace and forgiveness and hope and everlasting life. And while it's not about us, it will revolutionize us. And when you see the back end of this letter, that we're going to get to probably in two years' time, I just want to mention it up front. It talks about how you are to now bless your enemies. Some of the most profound instructions that could only be lived out if you had been totally transformed by Christ. Friends, that's why we're studying this letter. Because we deeply in an age where people have got no idea about anything really and have completely tossed the notion that there is a God who loves them. We need a clarity about what the gospel is. We need to understand it with a fresh depth. And brothers and sisters, we need a confidence that this gospel will still work today. And let me say, that is what this is saying to us. I pray that through this term, you will take the time each week to read it, to understand it, to believe it, and to experience it for yourself so that we might stand out in this community as a people marked by love and mercy and grace and truth. It is a deep, profound book. You will find some of it difficult and challenging but it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this incredible letter. No doubt we'll find some of it difficult to work through. There is a profundity and a depth that is unmatched and unrivaled. But Lord, help us to understand it's your message for us. It's about your son and the incredible grace and mercy that flows from him. And just give us confidence that as it worked so powerfully back then, it will continue to work today. In Jesus' name, amen.